Uh, everyone, would you please open up your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Uh, last weekend, Brittany and I, uh, we had the opportunity to go to a concert together and to enjoy some good music together, and we had a good date night. And, and at the concert, during the intermission, uh, they drew attention to an organization called IJM, or International Justice Mission, uh, which I had heard of before, but it had been a, a while since I had heard about their ministry and what they're doing. And, and this isn't necessarily a plug for IJM. In fact, if, if anyone knows more information about it or has worked with them before, uh, I'd love to, to talk to you and get, uh, get your knowledge and experience, what your experience with them has been. Um, and I've, I've briefly looked at their website, and from what I can tell, they're doing good work all around the world, helping rescue people from slavery. And, and here in America, we, we typically think of slavery as being a thing of the past, uh, but today, all around the world, there are still an estimated 50 million men, women, and children that are still living in some kind of slavery. And, and IJM is trying to raise awareness as well as partner with local civil governments to prosecute those who are enslaving people as well as rescue and restore those who have been enslaved. Now, whether or not IJM is the best organization to, to go with to see people freed from slavery, I'm, I'm not sure yet, so you can, you can help me as I, as I look into that more. But helping see people be free from slavery, that, that should absolutely resonate with the heart of a Christian because this is what the gospel of Christ produces in our lives and in this world. The, the fruit of the gospel being understood, received, and lived out, which you remember our slide, that's what our series in Galatians is all, is all about. The fruit of the gospel being understood, received, and lived out is freedom in Christ. It's freedom in Christ. And that freedom that Christ has purchased when applied to all spheres of life should absolutely lead the church to helping people be freed from physical slavery. But it has even bigger implications because the entire world needs to be freed from sin and self-righteousness. Because did you know that even if you've never actually been physically enslaved, that all of us, every man, woman, and child in here, at one point, we have been slaves to sin and to self-righteousness. Because of the presence of sin in our world, because of the presence of sin in our own hearts, we have all been slaves to sin. We've been enslaved to the guilt of sin. We've been enslaved to the power of sin. And we've also been enslaved to the pursuit of our self-justification, our self-righteousness. And the good news is that Christ came to free us. Christ came to free us. That's what this morning is all about freedom, church. Christ came to free us, but the enemy of our soul still wants to enslave us, or at the very least, keep us from believing that we are in fact free to keep us from believing that we are in fact free from the guilt of sin and the power of sin, that we are free from the pursuit of self-justification and self-righteousness. And the Apostle Paul, in writing to the churches of Galatia, he knows just how precious this spiritual freedom is. He knows how precious it is because he knows what it took to purchase it. 
It was bought with, with a, a, a big price. The price was the precious blood of Christ. And therefore, he urges believers in this letter to not squander the freedom that Christ has purchased you. Don't waste the freedom that Christ has purchased you. And so right from the start, though, I, I do want to clarify freedom in Christ. What, what's the purpose of our freedom in Christ? Well, church, we've been freed from sin and self-righteousness in order to love God and love others. That's what we've been freed to do. We haven't been freed to necessarily do whatever we want to do or to be whoever we want to be. We've been freed to do what God wants us to do and to be who God created us to be. We've been freed to love God and love others, and it is our slavery to sin and self-righteousness that is keeping us from loving God and loving others. But our freedom in Christ, it is, it is precious, and we must fight the fight of faith to believe and to live out the gospel in order to protect it and treasure it. And in order to protect it and treasure it, we must apply God's grace to all the chains of slavery in our world. And so my question for you this morning is, what do you need to be freed from today? What do you need to be freed from today? What is keeping you from loving God and loving others today? What lie are you believing that is actually not freeing you? It's enslaving you to something. Paul, later on in Galatians, in Galatians 5 verse 1, he's going to write, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Church, the fruit of the gospel being understood, received, and lived out is freedom in Christ. And so let's pray and let's ask God to, to free us from whatever is, is enslaving us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for truth. We ask, God, that, that your truth would go forth today and that we would receive it with hearts that, that don't just hear it with our ears and don't just understand it with our minds, but that we would receive your truth and we would actually believe it with our hearts. And Lord, may as we trust and believe your truth, may that transform us, May that unlock any chains that are enslaving us or keeping us from loving you and loving others today. And so, God, I ask that, that as, as liberty is proclaimed to captives, that you would do a good and gracious work on our hearts and that you would free us, God. That you would free us to live and for you to love you and to love others. So show us what is enslaving us today, and would you graciously free us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're, we're picking up today at the start of Galatians 2, and uh, it, Paul is, is right now in the middle of telling his story and defending his ministry, and the reason he's passionate about defending his ministry and his authority is not for his own sake, but it's so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for the Galatians and as well as for you and for me. He's already said back in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 1, which is, which is really like the thesis of his letter to the Galatians. He says back in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. 
For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This came directly from Jesus. And so at the end of chapter 1, he's, he's talking about how Jesus revealed himself to him, and he called him by his grace, and how he had set him apart before he was born, and how he didn't go consult the other apostles at first. And after three years in Arabia, then he does go, and he sees Peter and James, and he continues preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And now we get to chapter 2. And he's picking up the story 14 years later. And so if we were watching a movie, the screen would go black, all right, after Brendan's sermon last week, the screen would go black, and it would say, 14 years later. And now that's where we're at today, in Galatians 2, verse 1. Look with me at Galatians 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And so here's the scene, okay? Here's the scene. Paul, Barnabas, and Titus are going to Jerusalem to meet with Peter, James, and John. And just to clarify, it's James, Jesus' brother, not the, not the apostle James, okay? Which I, I think speaks a lot to evidence of the resurrection of Jesus and that Jesus is God if your own brother uh, worships you as God. The, uh, our brothers and sisters know us better than anyone else. Uh, James was convinced that Jesus was the Son of God, all right? So Paul, Barnabas, and Titus, they're going to Jerusalem to meet with Peter, James, and John. And, and now there's some disagreement amongst theologians as to whether Galatians 2 is the same event as the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. But I believe that this event in Galatians 2 is actually before the Jerusalem Council, and I'm happy to talk with anyone who wants to talk about that more, but I believe it's before the Jerusalem Council because if this was the Jerusalem Council or if Galatians was written after the Jerusalem Council, why wouldn't Paul make reference to the council and the decisions that were made at that council. So I, I believe this was before the council, and therefore the reason they are going to Jerusalem was likely the revelation we see referenced in Acts chapter 11. All right? In Acts chapter 11, there's a revelation that God gives to the church, and look what it says in Acts eleven twenty seven. We have up on the screens. It says, Now in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, also called Paul. Okay, so God had revealed to Paul and to the church through Agabus that there was going to be a famine and that the believers in Judea were especially going to need some relief help. Which, I mean, think about the time period that Paul is living and doing ministry in. It's post-resurrection and ascension of Jesus, but it's before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, which happens by the hand of the Romans, but it's ultimately God's judgment on Jerusalem. And so God's judgment is coming on Judea and Jerusalem. Famine, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars are going to happen in Judea. But even in the midst of that, God is providing for the believers there. 
You see, he's giving a revelation to Agabus for the church to raise funds and to send Paul and Barnabas with these funds to Judea to take care of the believers there who might be suffering from the famine and not have the means to provide for themselves physically. And isn't it good to know that God graciously provides for his people even when they're living in a country or a land that is experiencing his judgment? It's good to know that. And I don't know what's going to happen in America. I'm, a praying, for, I'm praying for revival. But even if that doesn't happen, and even if there's more judgment and discipline that comes upon us, I believe that God will graciously provide for his people here. He's given Agabus a revelation, and now Paul and Barnabas, they're taking some relief to the believers in Judea. And Paul continues to do that throughout his ministry as he's traveling throughout the Gentile world. Um, a lot of the Gentile Christians had more, more financial means, and he'd raise support from them and send it and take it back to the believers in Judea. And I think understanding that this is the purpose and the, the, likely the reason why they're going to Jerusalem, it makes t- verse 10 seem a little less random. Right? As Brendan read that, and then there, here comes verse 10. And by the way, they, they asked us to remember the poor. It's like, where did that come from? Well, that's part of the context. A famine was coming. A relief effort needed to happen to provide for believers in Judea. And that was part of Paul's heart throughout his ministry as he shares the gospel. He's also raising funds and caring for uh, the poor in Judea. And so Paul and Barnabas, they were, they were there to, be, to bring physical relief to the poor, but they also wanted to have a meeting with Peter, James, and John because Paul is concerned about the fruitfulness of the gospel. Yes, there is an actual famine about to happen, but he's concerned that there's going to be a spiritual famine in the church if the truth of the gospel is not preserved. And so Paul's got his, his squad together, and he's going to Jerusalem. And they're concerned about both a physical and a spiritual famine. And so who's, who's in his squad? Let's, let's look at who, he's, who he squads up here with. First, he's got Barnabas. All right, Barnabas grew up as a Jew, but came to faith in Christ. His mama named him Joseph, actually. But when he came to faith, the apostles likely thought there were, we already had enough Josephs in the church. And so they nicknamed him Barnabas which means son of encouragement. It was a nickname that he had because he was an encourager. What we also know about Barnabas is that he was generous. When he came to faith, he sold his land, he sold real estate, and he gave it to the church. And so in Barnabas, we see a generous encourager. Let us pray for more people like Barnabas in the church. So who, who else is in Paul's squad? Well, he also brings Titus. Now, Titus was a Greek. He was a Gentile. He'd come to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry. He didn't grow up Jewish, and so he wasn't circumcised. He, he wasn't used to all the Jewish customs and rituals and the ceremonial and civil laws. And so he becomes this test case for Paul to bring before Peter, James, and John and to test them as to whether they believe someone, in fact, is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or whether things like circumcision and the ceremonial civil law also have to be done in order to be saved. 
Because you got to understand this, amongst those in the Jewish culture, circumcision was a big deal for Jewish people. And rightly so. It was initially given to Abraham from God to be a symbol of salvation. And it was a symbolic sign that someone was a part of the covenant people of God. But what we see throughout Scripture is that it was supposed to always be pointing us to a greater reality of the new covenant. When people's hearts were going to be circumcised by the Holy Spirit. And so Titus here is serving as Paul's test for Peter, James, and John to make sure they're on the same page about the truth of the gospel. Can a Gentile become a Christian by grace through faith without becoming a Jew first? That's the question that the early church had to answer. Something the early church had to figure out as both Jews and Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ. The gospel of Christ had initially come to the Jews, but now it was going out to the nations. And the question was, can I be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or must we also add Jewish customs and rituals to that as well? And so I'm not sure if Titus fully knew what he was signing up for when he was going to this meeting. I'm not sure if Paul just convinced them of like this fun road trip they're going to go on and and taking some relief to Judea. I'm not sure if he knew his uncircumcision was going to be the main topic of conversation in this meeting or in the churches for the next 2,000 years. But Titus was up for a road trip, and so he, he joins the squad. And so Paul, in a display of his freedom in Christ, he travels to Jerusalem with Barnabas, a believing Jew, and Titus, a believing Gentile, And they go to Jerusalem to bring aid because of the famine and to get on the same page about the gospel. Because there should be gospel fruitfulness even in the midst of famine. But look at what Paul is concerned about causing a spiritual famine and inhibiting the fruitfulness of the gospel. Because this needs to be our same concern as well. As ones who have now been entrusted with the gospel ourselves, we need to be concerned about a spiritual famine and things that can come in and inhibit the fruitfulness of the gospel. Look at what Paul's concerned about back in verse 4 of Galatians 2. He says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, Paul saw the gospel fruit, the gospel fruit of freedom in Christ. He saw that it was under attack by people who called themselves brothers, but who didn't like all the freedom in Christ they saw going on in the church, and they wanted to enslave people once again to the law. They didn't want to use the law in the way God had intended the law to be used, but instead they wanted to use the law as a system of salvation, as a way to earn your right standing with God. Follow these rules and customs, and then you will be saved. It's what every other false religion, it's whatever political ideology that's out there, it's follow these rules and customs and then you will be justified, then you will be right. And Paul says that they did not yield in submission to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for the Galatian churches and so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you and for me. 
and all the people who are now freed in Christ, all the people who are now freed to eat bacon said, amen, amen, Amen. yes. And so now the baton of preserving and protecting the gospel has been passed to us, church. The baton has now been passed to us. We've been entrusted with the gospel. What will we do with it? Will we preserve and protect it from those that creep in that want to start adding things back to it? Because there will be people that come into this church who say that they are Christians, but they are not free in Christ because they don't believe that they've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But instead, they are enslaved to either sin or they are enslaved to self-righteousness. And listen, they will seek to enslave us as well. But we must not yield to these people even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for the city of Franklin and for our kids and for our grandkids. Because you see, enslaved people oftentimes enslave people. You've heard the saying, hurt people hurt people. There's some truth to that. In the same way, enslaved people enslave people. People who are enslaved to sin want to see you enslaved to sin as well. And they will promise you freedom, but when you go after other things other than Christ, I'm telling you, every other master is a cruel master, and they will turn on you and enslave you and use you. Christ is the only master that truly will free you. And so whether it's sex or money or power, what you think will lead to more freedom actually ends up leading you into slavery. There are also people who are enslaved to self-righteousness. And these are actually the people Paul mainly has in mind that are creeping into the church. These people are people who are enslaved to rules that they think by keeping them will make them right with God. They know nothing of God's grace. They know nothing of God's forgiveness. They know nothing of the love of God. And if they are enslaved to these rules, then you must be enslaved to these rules as well. These are people in the church who do not seek by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to build up the body of Christ, but instead beat up the body of Christ. These are people in the church who care more about controlling people than loving people. These are people who are enslaved to their emotions and to their own bitterness and unforgiveness. They are enslaved to their own guilt and shame and insecurity, and they do not know what it means to be freed from all that enslaves them. And therefore, they will seek to enslave others in church as well and bring us back into slavery where Christ has made us free. These false brothers and sisters, they have not understood and received and lived out the gospel of grace. And church, if you allow false brothers and sisters to continue like this in a church for very long, you are likely going to have a spiritual famine on your hands. The fruitfulness of the gospel will be diminished by these chains of slavery. An example of this type of person in the church um, would be Ernest Hemingway's mother. You guys have probably heard of Ernest Hemingway. He was a a writer in the early 1900s. 
And for most of his life, even till the very end, he hated his mother and the God that she claimed to worship. His mother, from a young age, had had abandoned God's design and role as a wife and a mother. She continuously dishonored her husband, Hemingway's father. She was the dominant leading force in the home, constantly berated and demeaned her husband and children, who, by the way, her husband eventually committed suicide. She was so ungracious and so unforgiving that in one letter to her son, she explained that a mother's life and love, it's like a bank. And every child that is born to her enters the world with a large and prosperous bank account, seemingly inexhaustible. The child makes withdrawals, but no deposits during the early years. But later, when the child grows up, it is his responsibility to replenish the supply he has drawn out. She then went on to explain the ways that her husband and children should make deposits into the bank. They could give her praises, and they could buy her flowers, and give her fruit or candy or pay her bills. And if a family member wanted love from her, they needed to be making regular deposits into this bank. If they wanted love from her, they needed to be deserving of her love. Now, what is really ironic and really sad is her name. Do you know what her name was? Her name was Grace. And she claimed to be a Christian. And only God knows her heart. I, I've only read a few letters between her and, and, and Hemingway. But I'm not sure a graceless Christian is really a Christian at all. It would seem that she had no concept of grace. No concept of forgiveness, no concept of unconditional love. She'd not been freed to love God and others by the gospel of grace. And because of her graceless Christianity, there was a spiritual famine and lack of joy in her house, and I'm sure in her church as well. You see, church, we need to be freed from sin. And we need to help others be freed from sin. We need to be freed from the guilt and condemnation of sin. And we need to help others be freed from the guilt and condemnation of sin. We need to be freed from the power of sin. We need to help others be freed from the power of sin. We need to be freed from the pursuit of self-righteousness and self-justification. And we need to help others be freed from the pursuit of self-righteousness and justifying themselves. We need to be freed from the desire to control people and use people. We need to be freed from our insecurity and people-pleasing tendencies. We need to be freed from unforgiveness and bitterness. And we need to be freed from these things so that we can be freed to love God and to love others. You can't love God and love others if you're still living like a slave. If you're still stuck in these chains. And it's only through believing the gospel of grace that the chains of slavery are unlocked. It is not enough to know God and understand his word. That's not enough. You actually have to believe it. You have to choose to believe it. You have to throw your entire weight and life upon it. 
You have to take the key of the gospel and actually put it into what is enslaving you, put it into the lock, and turn the key. Nothing else is going to fit into that lock. And church, this is how transformation and freedom takes place. It's not enough to just hear about God or know about God. You have to believe God. You have to rest your entire life on the fact that the only way you can be made right with God is by God's grace. Your justification, you being right with God and being right in this world, it is only by grace through faith in Christ. And the way you stay right with God and the way you keep from going back to living like a slave is only by grace through faith in Christ. This is the good news that every nation and every person in here and every sphere of our world needs to hear. And this gospel, it's not just for one culture or one people. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Gentiles. It's for the entire world. And every sphere of our world needs to be freed from the chains of sin and self-righteousness. Every sphere of our world needs someone to go and proclaim liberty to the captives. And so in the next few verses, we see that Paul, Barnabas, and Titus, they, they agree with Peter, James, and John that the same gospel message they both received needs to be taken to both Jews and Gentiles. Look with me now at verse 6, Galatians 2, verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Now, he's not being disrespectful of Peter, James, and John here, but he's, he's also not overly impressed with their position or status because God is impartial and Paul attempts to be as well. Verse 7, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, Cephas also a name for Peter, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And we see in Paul's ministry, he very much carried that out, always with a concern for caring for the poor. You see, there is an agreement here between Paul preaching to the Gentiles and between what Peter is preaching to the Jews. There, there's fellowship. There's agreement here. It is the same gospel, but it's being preached into different contexts and cultures. Because let me remind you what we've already learned about in chapter 1, that there is only one gospel. So chapter 1 is all about, chapter 1, verse 7, there's one gospel, the gospel of Christ. That is the good news of the world, the gospel of Jesus. And here in chapter 2, verse 7, in the original Greek, the word gospel, it's only used once. Our English translations just try to clarify it a bit by adding the word a second time. as the gospel going to the circumcised, the gospel to the uncircumcised. But God's word is not saying that there are two different gospels going out to the world. 
That's what Paul is trying to make sure doesn't happen while he's having this meeting. He brings Barnabas and Titus with him to show that there is one gospel that leads to freedom in Christ for both the Jew and the Gentile. And I've got them standing right next to me, Barnabas and Titus. And Peter, James, and John are like, yes, that's the same gospel we preach. We just preach it in a different context to a different culture, maybe emphasizing different points because of the people's background that we're preaching to. But it's the same gospel going to different cultures. And that gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is this gospel that transforms and frees someone when the Holy Spirit applies the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to someone's heart through faith. And so what we see here in Galatians 2 is we see fellowship and agreement between Paul and Peter that they proclaim the same gospel, the gospel of Christ, and that Paul should be entrusted in taking the lead to proclaim the gospel to the Gentile world and Peter to the Jewish world. However, even in that, we see it's not exclusively Paul only to the Gentiles. We see in his ministry and letters, he also is going into synagogues. He's writing and instructing the Jews as well. The same with Peter. He's not just exclusively going to the Jewish world. We see him with Cornelius. We see him with other Gentiles. But certainly we see an agreement that they agree on the gospel, and now Paul's going to take the lead to the Gentiles. Peter's going to take the lead to the Jews. But it's the same gospel going to two different cultures and contexts. Now, here's where this applies to us, church. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a cross-cultural gospel, meaning that when we take the gospel to different nations and cultures, we must be mindful of differentiating between what is Christian culture in America versus what is the gospel and what is commanded by God and his word for those who are free in Christ. Because in a similar way that the early church was free from making someone a Jew before they became a Christian, so too we are free from making someone an American before they become a Christian. When we go disciple the nations, we must make it our ultimate aim, not for them to look more and more like us, but for them to look more and more like Jesus. And so, as we go about cross-cultural ministry, we need to be prayerful and mindful about what, is, what, what are just our customs, what is just our conscience, what is just our family rules, what is just our normal cultural norms, and what is actually God's word? What is actually the gospel? Here's another way that this applies to us. We all, when we leave this place, are commissioned to go take the same gospel the same good news that people can be freed from sin and self-righteousness and experience freedom in Christ. We all have that same message to take, but we've all been called to take it into different contexts and to different cultures. And the application of it in different situations is going to look different, but it's the same good news that we can be free in Christ. Some of you are going to take the freedom the gospel produces to your kids this week. And you're going to help them trust Jesus and experience more and more freedom from their emotions and from their fears and from their pride and from their selfishness. Yes, you're going to go correct and discipline them, but not ultimately to control them more, but to love them more and help them experience more freedom in Christ. 
their selfishness and their pride and their their lack of emotional self-control, that's actually enslaving them. You want to free them. Help them be free in Christ. Some of you are going to take the freedom the gospel produces to your spouses this week. And you're going to help them trust Jesus more, not by being like Grace Hemingway, but instead by wives honoring your husbands and husbands sacrificially loving your wives and extending grace and forgiveness to one another. And ultimately, you're going to go into your marriage not trying to control one another more, but love one another more and help each other be more free in Christ. Go help your spouse be more free in Christ this week. Some of you are going to take the freedom the gospel produces to those who are enslaved to sinful thought patterns and addictions. And you're going to pray with them. You're going to meet with them. You're going to help them try to trust Jesus more. You're going to encourage them to to confess the sin, to pray with one another for the power to turn away from the sin, that Jesus would break that sinful thought pattern and habit and addiction, and to believe that it is faith in Christ that is what is going to unlock that chain of that sinful thought pattern. For in Christ, we can be free from the power of sin. We can be free from the guilt of sin. Some of you are going to take the freedom of the gospel, uh, the freedom the gospel produces to those who are facing death, those who are struggling with physical weakness and disease and cancers. And you're going to remind them and help them believe that we are free from the chains of death when we are in Christ. That death doesn't hold us anymore. And because of Christ, death is not the end for us. In fact, it is more like the beginning. Some of you are going to take the freedom the gospel produces to those who are enslaved to self-righteousness. And you're going to give them a loving rebuke like Paul will give Peter in the next few verses. That's next week. And you're going to do it not to beat them up, but to help them live as ones who are free in Christ. Some of you are going to take the freedom the gospel produces into the sphere of business and into the realm of real estate and into politics and into the college and into the military and into caring for the poor and into Clarity Pregnancy Center. And you're going to proclaim freedom to the captives. Oh, you see, church, we've been entrusted with the same message, but we've been commissioned to take it and apply it into each and every different context that God has given us. And so go be a herald of freedom this week, church. I was, I was inspired to go be a herald of freedom. Uh, earlier this week, I stepped outside to, to sit on our back uh, patio and just spend some time praying, just, just be with the Lord a little bit. And off in the distance, we, we have a neighbor that on occasion plays the bagpipes. And so I'm thinking about, you know, this text. I'm thinking about what God's doing. And then you hear these bagpipes playing in the background. And I don't know what it is, but just something in you rises up and you just want to go yell, freedom? (laughs) Well, I don't know how to play the bagpipes, but this sermon is my attempt to play the bagpipes for you all to go out from this place and to proclaim freedom to the captives. To proclaim freedom to those who are enslaved to sin. To proclaim freedom to those who are enslaved to self-righteousness and religion. And to proclaim freedom to those that are living in the guilt and shame of sin. To go proclaim freedom, church. 
May your life shout it to the world. And so what will you do with the freedom that you have in Christ? Will you fight the fight of faith to keep believing and living out the freedom that you have in Christ? It will take a fight of faith. And for some of you, some of you can't love God and others well right now because you're enslaved to something. Something's holding you back and keeping you from loving God and others right now. What is keeping you from loving God and others today? What are you enslaved to this morning? And I would encourage you, if the Lord brings something to your mind as we pray and as we continue to worship, if he brings something to your mind that you know right now is keeping you from loving God and others with your whole heart and whole mind, your whole self, if he brings something to mind that you know right now has a grip on you, is enslaving you, I would encourage you to be courageous enough after the service to tell a brother or sister, to tell one of the pastors to come up here. Let's pray together. There's something that breaks these chains when we confess our sin to one another and we pray for God's healing together. Something beyond what I can explain happens in people's lives. This is when transformation happens. It's when we actually trust what God says, when we actually choose to believe it. And so I would encourage you, if God brings something to mind, would you please come forward today? Would you grab a brother or sister, pull them off to the side? Would you confess that to one another? And would you pray so that you can go live as one who is free in Christ today and you can proclaim freedom to all those around you? And then church, here's just a warning for us as a church. May we be on guard against those who seek to enslave us to sin or to the guilt of sin or to the pursuit of self-righteousness. And may God protect and bless this church and each and every household in it that is represented here so that we would preserve the truth of the gospel for generations to come. Let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing.